Hey, it's Dr. G. And whether you've been a longtime listener or you're new to the podcast, welcome. Have you ever felt like you wanted to start over or reinvent your life? If so, I want to invite you to tell me all about it. I really need your advice. And to reward you for your time, I'm going to be choosing nine listeners to join me on a free one-on-one relaunch game plan call. This call is designed to help you get clear on your specific goals so you can relaunch your life. To join in and be eligible for the free call, go to discover.drgordon.me. That's discover.drgordon.me and answer all the questions. I look forward to reading your responses and talking to you soon. Thanks for your help and thanks for launching your life with me. And welcome to the Launch Your Life podcast, the only mindset podcast that provides weekly actionable insights for lasting happiness and change for high achieving professionals who are ready to bounce back from burnout. I'm your host, Dr. G. Today we're talking to Jill or J.M. Phillips. J.M. Phillips is an author and retired occupational therapist. When she became motivated by the retelling of family stories, she wrote Lamlash Street. The book is about navigating family life in London after World War II. She's a storyteller with a passion to inspire families to connect through the telling of their past. JM grew up in the UK and immigrated to Canada, working for 30 years as an occupational therapist and hospital manager before retiring. Rather than slow down the pace of her life as she neared retirement, JM focused her efforts to enjoying each day with a zest for life. She's a technology and sci-fi fan with a thrill-seeking streak, and she's been cave swimming in Mexico and hopes to swim with dolphins in the future. During the podcast, we talk about the mindset shifts JM had to make in order to overcome her personal obstacles to writing a book and how you can start to take action toward your passion right now. We also geek out a bit about science fiction. It's kind of fun. You know, it's never too late to start something new, and this episode will motivate you to get started. At the end of the episode, visit launchyourlifepodcast.com where you can find the show notes, plus the links to the books and resources mentioned in the episode. Every day at 8.30 a.m. Eastern, I post on LinkedIn. Follow me there or just search Dr. Michelle Gordon to get actionable life-launching tips. And when you're ready to create change in your life, Reach out to me on LinkedIn or by email, drgordon at drgordon.me, drg at drgordon.me. I'm happy to talk to you to find out if you're a fit for one of our life-changing programs. Thanks for launching your life with me. Now, let's get to JM. Jill Phillips, welcome to the Launch Your Life podcast. I'm super happy to have you here because, uh, you know, I think almost everybody wants to write a book and almost nobody actually does it. And so it's really great to, uh, to have you here. And I would love for you to just introduce yourself to the audience and tell us a little bit about why you're here and what's, uh, what, what you're excited about right now. Okay. It's lovely to be here. Nice to meet you. And um, my life, I started off in healthcare, actually. I was an occupational therapist for 30 years and a hospital manager. Mm. And my last three years, I ended up being a change manager, an organizational change manager. And ironically enough, after I retired, I've done more change in the last 15 years, I think it is, (laughs) or 10, 15 years, than I had in the whole 30 years prior to that. 
And what I found is the, the older I get, the more I really want to try new and exciting things. And it just all crept up on me, little bit by bit by bit. When I was working and raising a family, I was just doing, you know, you do the grocery shopping at the weekend, you come home, you do the housework, nothing spectacular. Mm. Until I got to be in my late 50s, and then I decided I wanted to do um, some more uh, education. And so then that's when I, I actually eventually um, got my graduate degree in occupational therapy, having not studied for like 30 odd years. Um, and I think that sort of set me on a road. I didn't quite see where the road was going at the time. But now I feel that I can basically do anything I set my mind to. As long as I don't set my sights too high, I think I'm going to be the best or the most brilliant. But I just try my best. And if I need help, I get help. And writing the book wasn't something I started out to do. But I'm now a published author, which is really exciting. So that's really great because you know, here you are a change management specialist and you ended up taking some of those principles and applying them to your own life and creating a bunch of change in your life. And, you know, we talk a lot about creating change and, uh, and accountability and personal responsibility. And so can you just talk a little bit about the mindset shifts it took for you to actually take some action onto these things you've been dreaming about for a long time? It's, it's a process, very much a process. I didn't suddenly wake up one morning thinking, oh, wow, I can do this. Um, as uh, I was in an unhappy relationship for the best part of 25 years. So that was a massive change. I decided that it wasn't right for me. So we, we divorced. Mm-hmm. And while you're going, went through that process, I was looking at all these self-help books. And a lot of them, as you said, are about personal responsibility. The only person you can change in life is yourself. You can't change other people. No point in blaming other people, which I've done a lot of blaming over the years. I mean, I wasn't, you know, it wasn't as if, even although being a healthcare professional, it's very different when it's you. You don't have any major insights. You think you do, but you don't. And so over time, I was thinking, now, what can I do? Um, what can I do with my, the new version of me? So one of the first things I, I did, even when I was still at work, is um, I had brown, short hair up to that point. And um, I can remember I went to a human resources meeting one day and I'd had some highlights. Put in. I think it was only about six little streaks on the top of my head. And I can recall that everyone was looking at the top of my head as I was reading this file. Nobody was listening to what I was saying because I was such a, an invisible person up to that point. That's, I think, when I started to understand that I could be much more than that. And that it was okay to be different. I think that's mm. the other thing. You'll find there are so many people in life, um, especially your, your family and friends, um, who don't like you to change that much. And so I gradually realized that I could be anything I wanted to be, but you had to prepare. You had to have reasonable expectations. And the worst thing you can ever do is talk to people about what you're going to do. i'm so sorry because so many people will because so many people will just like try to like kill your dream if if you tell you know because they don't want you they don't want you to like upset the apple cart right and when when you start to think bigger start to like try to grow into something that you know you're more that's more than where, where you are then um, oftentimes sharing that sounds really, really scary. And it's funny because I closed a multi-million dollar surgical practice because I 
I mean, I made a lot of money, but I hated my life. I hated it. And I was like, I got to make a change. I got to make a change. And I had just created this gilded cage around myself. I'm like, I want to travel. And I started just really looking at what I wanted to do. And every time I talked to, there's a couple people that I talked to. They're like, well, you know, you got to go back to surgery because that's where the money is. And I'm like, mm, no, I don't. <laughs> well, I hear what you're saying. Because what I found was it's bad enough when you, you make these changes, which may not be age appropriate to other people around you. Oh, no, you're too old for that. Why are you bothering? So not only do you have these voices in your head saying, oh, I don't know if I should be doing this. But then if you announce, um, if I had gone to my family and said, I'm going to be a published author and I'm going to be on Amazon. And you can imagine, I mean, the, what their response would have been, what are you talking about? You know, what about your family life? You should be doing this. You should be doing that. They would never say live your dreams. It was so you have like a double dose of, of negativity to deal with the voices in your head yeah. and the nearest and dearest around you saying, have you lost your mind? So you don't ever want to say to people, I'm going to make this major change in life. So yeah, no, I, I like that. I mean, some people actually do, and, and some people do because they want the accountability, right? Like, so if you, if you um, say you want to lose 100 pounds, it's, it's much easier to lose 100 pounds when you start to get accountable for it and start to tell people that I'm going to make these changes because behavior change is hard. Uh, especially when it comes to, you know, what you're eating and how you're moving your body, right? But maybe maybe something like becoming a published author might be, you know, a secret aspiration that you get to show uh, later on, like, hey, look at me. It's up. It's up there. I'm on Amazon now. Yeah. You know. And then there was like, this deathly silence when I said that as well, when I made the big announcement. It's like, really? And then I, I bumped into a family member um, a couple of months later, and I think I'd only just done one or two podcasts. And she's, oh, so what are you doing this mm -hmm. weekend? Oh, I've been asked to um, be a speaker, uh, a panel speaker on um, a discussion about women and what they're going to do in life uh, in Texas. She said, really? Oh, okay then. And so there's, there's not very, even once you've got there, there's not a huge outpouring of, oh, wow, isn't that wonderful <laughs> from certain people in your life? Because yeah. like I said, they'd seen you a certain way for so many years. And I think even now they have trouble coming to terms with the fact that I'm sitting here on a Friday evening doing a podcast. Um, so I don't really tell those people. The people I do share that with is the people who are supportive. Um, and, um, one, and just you mentioned weight, losing weight earlier on. Um, I've, I've been challenged with weight my whole life and I put a ton of weight on over the, the divorce. But the one person I could talk to about the weight was I had a personal trainer. I thought, oh, I'm going to splurge and really get myself in shape. So she was the one person I went to every week and we discussed how I was doing and, and so on and the exercises. And, and, and I lost a lot of weight with it. I lost 40 pounds. Wow. Um, but I, I didn't tell certain people in my life because I recognized that they, um, they wouldn't be very supportive um, because right. as you said earlier, they want you to be a certain way. So most things I've done, I haven't sort of said, oh, big announcement, I'm going to do that because it doesn't work for me. Um, I've done it with very small steps. So it's almost like keeping under the radar, if you like. Um, so you say to somebody, oh, no, oh, I've lost 10 pounds now. Like, don't say you've lost two pounds, 10 pounds. And then, <laughs> oh, I've lost 20 now. 
then you, I felt more secure because I've actually lost in 10 pounds. Now, you know, it takes some effort to put that 10 pounds on. It's not like you, you lose two pounds and then it goes on again because you have a pizza or, or whatever it is. So yeah. I find for me that works really well that I, um, I keep under the radar and I do these things. And like I said, I don't have to deal with other people's comments, negative comments, and the voices in my head are a lot quieter that way. Yeah, that's so funny because, you know, we do have to we do have to struggle with the negative voice inside of our head. And, and one of the things that I teach in uh, my Launch Your Life program is how to make friends with that voice. And it it makes a big difference because when you can actually see it but not act on it, then it changes your whole perspective on life. When you set yourself down this path of change, you decided to write a book, right? So why don't you tell us about that first book? Um, I technically, I decided to write down some stories from my, my youth. Mum mm. was getting older. Um, Dad had been diagnosed with Alzheimer's. Mum was the youngest of 12. And so um, she was literally the last person to go in, in that family environment. All my aunts and uncles had, were disappearing quite rapidly at that point. And so I thought, wouldn't it be nice if I could write down some of the family stories from Lamlash Street, which is the name of the place that we lived in, my first home, um, because I had such warm feelings about it. And I can remember going to weddings and 10, 20 years later, relatives will still be sitting there talking about, I do remember when so-and-so did this, I do remember, that. so they were still talking about those days. They were such happy days because we had huge family around us and after that things changed and we moved on and there wasn't so much family. And the other thing is, as I said, my dad unfortunately um, died with Alzheimer's and I was thinking, oh my God, that might be me. Am I going mm. to have Alzheimer's? No, because it's a genetic link as well. So I thought, you know what, let, let me just write this down before I forget. Uh, and that's how I started. So I started with a few stories and then I would talk to various family members saying, do you remember we used to go down to East Lane Market um, on a Saturday, whatever the day was, and we used to have jelly deals. And, um, and actually, by the way, East Lane Market was where Charlie Chaplin was born. His house used to be just down the end of the, uh -huh. the street there. Um, and after we'd had our jelly deals and sarsaparilla, it's like a, a rich syrupy fruity like drink. Root, like which, root beer. Sarsaparilla. Which, which yeah. everybody knows about. So if you talk to somebody who knows East Lane Market and South East London and Cockney London, uh, Cockney Londoners, mm -hmm. they all know about going down to the Sarsaparilla Man. And so as I was talking to my, my relatives, they talked more and more about these things. And I said, oh, do you remember, Mum, when I, um, I used, uh, how I learned how to swim? Oh, yes, you used, learned how to swim at Manor Place Swimming Bars. Huge mm -hmm. Victorian, I think it was about 110-year-old building. Um, and the way we used to learn to swim, there was no technique in those days. We used to swim around the, the four corners. It was 100 yards from one end to the other of the pool. Um, but the swimming instructor just walked by the side of us as we were swimming. And she had a broom handle. And if we started to sink a little bit, then she'd bring the broom handle closer and we can hold on to it so we wouldn't drown. But if we were doing fine, or she thought we were doing fine, she'd just move it further away. And that was, that was the technique for learning how to swim. So we talked oh about all those, all those funny little stories. I mean, there was no flotation devices either, by the way. There was nothing. It was just the broom handle and your will to live. And that was it. But you know, <laughs> half of us did learn to swim. <laughs> 
broom and, and half of us drowned. I don't know what happened to the other half. The broom handle and your will to live. Oh my God. I remember her shoe. She had these very brown brogue shoes, thick um, stockings up her legs because she spent a lot of time looking at her legs as she was swimming by. Um, sure. And and like this, this very thick, heavy skirt down to the middle of her her calves there. But yeah, that was it. No technique, That's nothing. That's a great story. That's a yeah. great story. You mentioned in your um in your bio that you really like science fiction. So I would love yeah. to have a conversation with you about science fiction, only because I'm a huge science fiction fan, and I can imagine that people who listen to this podcast, if you're not a nerd and you don't you're not ready to nerd out, you can go now. We're gonna nerd out a little bit on science fiction. <laughs> so. So um, why don't you tell me who your favorite science fiction author is? Well, um, I okay, most of my science fiction, actually, well, Isaac Asimov is a must. I can remember being at school. So I went to an all-girls school, very proper school, huge, great library. All the classics were there. And yeah. I used to love science fiction. And I can remember the library teacher coming up to me and saying, you keep reading these science fiction books. It's about time you read these books about with the great classics, you no know, Jane Austen and all these. And I was thinking, oh, no, 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 no. Because I'd rather read the science fiction books. Yeah. And I, I basically, in my head, I was thinking to myself, I'd rather know about the, the three laws of robotics than I would about how to get married. And you know, to me, it was like an obvious choice. It was far more interesting. Sure. And because I was into science fiction at school, um, I think it started, to be honest, with Doctor Who, you know, the BBC series. Mm-hmm. Was back in 1963, I actually watched the very first episode of Doctor Who. Right. Oh, yes, I love yeah. The Prisoner as well. I yeah. think that was a little smudging later. I think it was a couple of years later. Maybe maybe the um, 70s. I don't know. But yeah, those BBC shows uh, were great. So tell me about the impact Doctor Who had on you. I think it, it did a couple of things because I, um, I, I sort of touched on it in my book as well is... Um, it was one of the very first series where the role model for girls was different. Um, the, the granddaughter of the Doctor, which was a scenario, was the one who asked all the questions and, and he was, you know, had all the knowledge. But mm-hmm. it was one of the few series out there where, where women were actually out there doing something for themselves. They were empowered. They weren't waiting for the, uh, the man to come along and rescue them every five minutes from the aliens or whatever the storyline is. Right. Um, also, women could be intelligent. They could talk about uh, scientific. They had lines about scientific things. It wasn't. It wasn't. Um, it wasn't a show where you had to ask the man for all the answers. Um, and in that those days, it was really, really important because I can remember my mum saying that in those days, women had no control over money uh-huh. because the men made all the decisions. So the men were the breadwinners. The women stayed mm-hmm. at home. Um, except in our family, which was a little bit different, because mum was a very... Mum's dad, my grandfather, was a regimental sergeant major, a drill sergeant. So everything was run like clockwork in his house, and mum took a lot of that to heart. Mm. Now, I don't know... Mum seems to be the one that that tuned into that. The rest of the the, the girls in the family were quite happy listening to the men, and they organised and everything. Mum planned, she organised... You can never sit down for more than five minutes in mum's house because she had something else for you to do. She's very goal-orientated. Now, fortunately, she married dad, who was a very quiet man, just wanted a quiet life, had no interest in organising anything. So mum had free reign, including financial decisions. So Ah. I think, so for me, Doctor Who was important because of roles were changing. 
and mm-hmm. that was a, a couple of years before it was women's lib um, and burning your bra and all these sorts of things which now seems archaic um, and the body shop that was formed about that time as well um, which was a CEO was a woman which was you know stunning for those days um, things were beginning to change back in the early 60s uh, it was it's actually it's quite interesting when I look now at the attitudes of family now if you see uh, a man looking after children at home say that the stay-at-home husband for want of a better phrase or you see a man pushing a, a, a stroller down the, the street with a baby in it, it it's fine it's normal Right. Whereas back in the 1960s, I can remember, um, I think once we, I saw a man with a, a child, it was actually out with his child holding his hand or something. And mum was saying, oh, that's a bit odd. I thought, what? She said, there's, there's a man with that child. Where's that child's mother? So <laughs> men were really um, shamed almost if they, it could never be seen pushing a pram or pushing a stroller, nothing like that at all. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't masculine. And, you know, that brings brings us back to the, you know, the, the, the notion of patriarchy and you will probably enjoy it. It's called the alphabet versus the goddess. And oh, yeah. it is the it's it's probably the best religious history book I've ever read, but it's not really religious history. What it is, is it's wh- why misogyny exists, oh, right. why, <clears throat> excuse me, why women were subjugated to men. And it has to do with moving out of the right brain into the left and how before we had written language we were all in kind of you know being mode and all the gods were goddesses and everything everything was female and then as we started to move into the left brain with written language um the the male gods started killing the female gods and it's it's just really really fascinating and and it's it's a great history of the patriarchy and kind of why religion subjugates women and um and and the reason why I think it's so important is because we are in this age now where we can stand up as women and really demand equal rights. And it's expected, you know, after Me Too and COVID and, you know, working from home and all the things, it's really it's really a, a time for, for female empowerment, I do believe. And so I, the more we can be educated about about why and how things started the way the way they are and why things are the way they are we can actually make make some change and it may not happen in our lifetime but but uh but at least we can start the education you know the educational ball rolling as it were yeah actually i I agree with you 100 percent. and i can remember i was watching um it was a series like i can't remember the name off the top of my head but it was a three-part series on history of women's rights Mm. and one thing i still remember this very day she said she said don't ever think that because you have those rights now that in the future you they may not disappear because if you look back over history there have been times say a thousand years ago when women had a lot of uh, independent decision making and Mm. and power and then something changed a new religion or war or whatever it was and it came in and they lost that ability to be that independent so always protect what you have it's really important yeah that's great advice so getting back to science fiction and, and actually misogyny. So maybe six months ago, I read uh, all of the Foundation series from Isaac Asimov, right? I haven't, I've, I've read iRobot in the past and, and back in the 80s, I subscribed to the Asimov magazine uh, and I used to read it voraciously every day, you know, every month when it came. Um, but what I did notice in the Foundation is it's quite misogynist. There's There's no female protagonists I think I think that's that's one of the things about um, history and that's one of the reasons why I wrote the book is attitudes 
are so endemic within everything you say, you do, your language for that time. So, for example, life in the 1960s was very much um, women should be seen and not heard and do what they're, they're told yeah. to do. And I think Asimov, I believe it was 1950s, I think he wrote that. So yeah. you have to take it, I think you take the good from the stories, but you also have to acknowledge that those were the prevailing attitudes of the time. They should never be now, no question of it. Uh, don't condone it in any way, but just understand um, the background of the author at the time. Um, and I think you, if you do that, then you could take what take the good from the story. But if, if you are sitting there saying, "Well, that's wrong. That's wrong. That's wrong. Oh, that should never have happened. No, she, he should never have done this." I think uh, that it's you're just seeing the differences between the cultures. And funnily enough, one of the reasons I wrote the book and set it back in the 1960s is because attitudes to women have changed positively between then and yeah. now and I sure. wanted the the um, the younger members and younger women and, and the girls to be able to get that perspective of looking back to the 1960s and saying okay we've come a long way there's still a long ways to go yes we 110% agree with that but look at how far we have come pat ourselves on the shoulder for that and um, I want you that as an author I wanted them to see what a challenge the basics of life were for um, women in the 1960s. I, I think that's awesome. I love that that you're you know giving that perspective. And what's the name of your book again? It's, it's Lamb Lash Street. L A M L A S H Street, which is the name of the street that I lived in, which apparently oh, is awesome. uh, is a small village somewhere in northern Scotland. <laughs> I have no idea why they <laughs> named it Lamb Lash Street, but. Uh, I kept the name because I thought it was different in terms of being a name. It was, and uh, and it's true. That's where I live. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that's great. So everybody, go and buy the book on Amazon. Lamb Lash. Lamb Lash. Lamb Lash. Yeah, I know. It's Lamb a mouthful. <laughs> Lamb Lash Street. And I wanted to ask you earlier. You talked about a jellied eel. Oh right. Yes. What What is that? Because I'm in America and okay. I've never heard that term before. <laughs> okay. Well, they're eels. No regular eels. Slimy eels that slither around. Um, Ew. And you eat them. Sorry. But there is a bit of history to it. So, okay. um, <laughs> so the working poor, <laughs> back in the Victorian era, the working poor, um, they, they, did, they did, had no money for food, anything. It was very you know, on the breadline all the time. But apparently, because I read about this and was writing the book, the eels used to swim up the River Thames as far as London. Ah. Uh, and so they would fish the Thames for food. And so they would take the eels and cook them like fish, and then the jelly would come out of the the gelatin would come out of the skeleton, and then after you cut it into pieces about two inches long, you put vinegar on it, and then that was considered a healthy food, which technically it is. Um, yeah, it's probably really good for you, actually. It's really filling. I, I actually had yeah. some last year. <laughs> And uh, yeah, before mum passed on, me and mum had uh, jelly deals each. So nobody else in the family was anywhere near. <laughs> they were so disgusted. <laughs> but it, it tastes like fish. Mild fish, yeah, but it imagine. looks like snake. Really. <laughs> there you go. Ooh, I'm sorry. It sounds disgusting. But I, 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 if I ever go to London um, and, you know, when, when the pandemic ends and we can travel again. And I mean, it's starting to it's starting to lift up. But now there's it new is. variants. Um, 
if I ever get to London, I, there's a couple things I want to try. One is in, uh, Indian food in London is supposed to be the best in the world. And, uh, and now I have to try this jellied eel, but I'm not a big fish fan, so it might really not be happy. Well, you know, uh, you can always me. go to the, um, the pie and mash shop because jellied eels are sold at the pie and mash shop. So these okay. are pies with mashed potato and um, uh, some herbed gravy over the top. Which So you've got your jelly deals at the pie mash shop. So if you're not into eels, you can try the pie mash <laughs> Okay. Oh, yes, I have to try. What is it? it it's uh, fish and chips and mushy peas. That's a very... Uh, I'm not a mushy a very... pea fan, but some people yeah. are. <laughs> All right. Let's get back on track. So I wanted, right. I just want to talk to you about a couple other science fiction authors. So you love Asimov. Um, have you ever read Gene Wolfe? No, I haven't. No, tell me now. So you're missing out. He's the most subtle, excellent writer. So read, read the Book of the New Sun. It's a four book series and it is so nice as you go through it to see how it all, it all just comes together like every sentence can relate back to the very first sentence of the book yeah. and um, I that's that's the last series I, I read and and I am sad because that main character Severian or Severian or Severian or Severin or whatever how you however you say his name is no longer in my life and so I have um, I have picked up another Gene Wolfe book and it's really interesting Gene Wolfe because he wrote a uh, wrote a an essay on how to read Gene Wolfe and when, when oh, right. an author like Neil Gaiman actually yeah. like goes and says, this is how you have to read this guy, I was like, wow. So yeah, I, I highly recommend that. And then, you know, there's a lot of other types of like hard science fiction written by Larry Niven and some of the other, um, uh, uh, Frederick Poehler. Did you ever read Frederick Poehler? No, I see, I, my, Frederick my Pohl, science Frederick fiction... Pohl. Pole. I've heard of them. Uh, yeah, my science fiction interest really was, um, I watched the Doctor Who series, I watched it all the way through. Yeah. Uh, and then um, I can remember back in the day when um, this very first Star Trek movie came out. So I couldn't wait to go and see that. The Star Trek movie, the series, or the ser Star Trek or, or Star Wars? Uh, the, the, first, the movie from the series, yeah, because the series was back in the 60s. Yeah. And then the, the first movie, right. yes. So, um, yeah, I think that yeah, was so in the I, 80s, I really, right? Yes, it was. Yes, yeah. I think I was yeah. pregnant with my child at the time. <laughs> so you're a, you're a tre you're a Trekkie. You're not a big Star Wars fan. You like the Trekkies. Oh, I, I, Star Wars like... as well. All of them. Yes. Yeah. 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 I, I just love the environment. Star Wars is like a perfect, great ending. You know, it's the perfect hero's journey. With with my book that um, got together these stories from my youth, and yeah. then I thought, well, I maybe have enough stories now to to write a book. Um, and but I was a bit lost as to where to go next from there because I, I had never gone down this road before. So then I, I heard about a, a book write, writing coach and he was really useful because he gave me a few really good guidelines. So one of the things he said to me was uh, you have to have some thread that's going to take the that's going to give structure to this book from beginning to end. And so he said to me, no, he said, think about the Titanic, the movie. I said, OK, so where would the Titanic be without the love story? And I thought, OK, that's a good point. He said, you know your way around the ship, but the, the love story is the link that links the story all the way through. And so then he said to me, so do you have um, 
any love story that you could talk about? And I thought, no, no, no. And I thought, oh, hang on a second. Yes, there was this one person. So I said, well, yes, there was this Anthony. Um, he was my first love. And I, I suppose I could write about that. And that ended up being the glue that, that pulled together all the stories in the book. Uh, but at the time, going back to you know, talking about people um, giving themselves a lot of negative story, negative uh, self-talk, at yeah. the time, I thought, how am I going to write about romance? I mean, I've, I've written a thesis, but that's completely different from a romance. Uh, but I did in the end. It took a lot of work, and I got a lot of support from my, my coach and encouragement. But at the end of the day, there's a love story that goes through the book, and it, it, oh, it binds great. all the stories together. So I guess I'm trying to say is never think you, you – don't ever say you can't do something. At least give it a try. I mean, if somebody had said to me, yes, you're going to write about romance and you're going to publish a book and do all these other things, it's like, no, 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 I've never done anything like that before. But the other thing I'd like to say is that if you find you're, you're getting to a roadblock, always, always ask for the right sort of help. Never mm. say to yourself, oh, no, no, I can't do this. If you, if you come across a roadblock, just assume that you, there's information you don't have. So what you need to do then is to get information from the person that can help you negotiate your roadblock and move through. Um, I had help from a ton of people when I was uh, getting my book published. Lots of people on the way. Yeah. Um, and that I think I would recommend that to anybody because you learn so much. Yeah, I agree with you. You know, the thing is, is that you, you don't get from where you are to where you want to go. Uh, in, in first of all, you don't get there in a straight line. And secondly, you don't get there alone. It's, it's just not possible. And you learn from the mentors in your life. And, and for me, I mean, I've hired a coach every time I needed to learn something that was new to me because coaching closes the gap. Coaching gives you, you know, perspective that you'd never have. And it's every, every person I've worked with in, in my programs, you know, that they come out of it and, and they get the results so much faster than I ever did because I'm able to give them the tips and tricks. And that's where, that's where I think coaching really comes in. No, yeah, because okay. I mentioned earlier that I had a personal trainer for losing weight. Well, the other thing that happened from that is that um, I bumped into somebody and I said, oh, no, I'm getting fit and all this sort of good things. Oh, have you ever, ever heard of park run when you do 5K runs oh. on a Saturday? Like they're, they're all over the, the planet, basically. So I said, no. I said, so, well, why don't you try it? I thought, why don't I try it? Now, I was 65 at the time. <laughs> and so it's like, okay, well, maybe I will try it. So I went to my personal trainer and said, um, you know, I'm thinking of, of running a 5K. And I thought she was going to just laugh and say, what are you doing? She said, oh, no, that's okay. She said, go see your doctor, get yourself checked out. So the cardiologist checked me out. Yes, yes, everything's fine there. She patted me on the head as she left the room, said, you go and run your 5K. I thought, all right. I went back, I did my exercises, and I ran my 5K. I think it was about six or eight months later. Now, I was the last person there. There's 500 people in the field. I was the last one to cross the line. Um, and as I crossed the line, they were taking the barriers down behind me. So I was literally the last person. But I kept at it. And I think, and then eventually COVID hit, so everything stopped. But then I was eighth from the end at one point. So I was gradually inching my way up the field. But I hadn't run anything since like 12 years old. So for me, it was a huge, huge uh, jump in concept to say, uh, do you, why don't you go and run 5K? And I'm thinking... Okay, I'll give this a try. And I think that's what happens as well. As you do these things, you'll find, okay, so I've written a book. So if somebody says you're going to write another one, it's not a huge jump. 
I've done 5K. So if somebody said, are you going to do 10K? It's like, well, maybe I'll look at this. So all these little things build on your confidence. It doesn't happen overnight, Mm -hmm. but you start to believe in yourself with the right help, as you mentioned, that you can do nearly anything um, and you can have the experience of being with runners or being with writers or or whatever your, your, your interest is. Yeah, that's really great. I think it's so important. Something I say all the time is that every single limit is in your mind. Everything that you think is that, that you can't do is only because you think you can't do it. And you know, I have a similar running story. I hadn't run since I was 18 and I started, I, I had picked up a cycling coach and he ha- happened to be a triathlon coach. And I said, well, I guess I'm gonna try running. And when I first started running, it was like one minute at a time and my heart rate was going up to 180, you know, so I had to walk for three minutes and then run and walk. Eventually, I um, came in second in my age group in 5Ks. You know, I was, I was, you know, competitive. I mean, I wasn't like world class, but for me, you know, I was doing, I I did a seven mile run in 11 minutes per mile, which I thought was really good for me at, you know, 55 or something. And, and then I did, I did a 5K like in under 30 minutes. That's excellent. That's really good timing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 5K so, under 30s, excellent. Yeah, so I was, I was really, you know, and and I could do that again. I just, I, you know, it's 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 practice. And it and is it's practice. Really yeah, and other things take over, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, we, you know, you you can do anything. You know, you you want to be a writer, you just have to write, and and your writing might suck at first, and then it's going to get better. I mean, remember, anything worth doing is worth sucking at it first. You're not born being excellent at anything, and no, so you're it's not. Really, so yeah. important to just go ahead and, and practice and, and give yourself some grace. So let's talk a little bit about how the world needs the memoirs of the people who are listening to this. Okay, the, the thing I like to, to mention is um, there's a very famous memoir that we all know, Diary of Anne Frank. Yeah. Um, she wrote down day-to-day happenings of what, what happened during the war. And we still read those now and we learn from them. Um, so whatever your personal family story is, it has value to other people. My particular take was, as I said, that I wanted to, to give people some context about what it was like being a woman in the 1960s. And so then when they're saying today it's tough, yes, it is tough, but it was tough back then as well. So, yeah. um, so that I like to, that, that's one of the reasons I wrote it really was to give people that context so they could understand that. Um, so yes, we all have different stories. They don't have to be spectacular stories. Um, they don't have to be, you don't have to do amazing things, but it is your story. If it comes from the heart and if you have, and if you have enough information, enough interesting stories, other people will be fascinated by it. A lot of the people that have written, uh, sorry, that have read my book, like it because they can reminisce about the old days back in the 60s in London mm. and you know I was in Cockney London like Cockney rhyming slang you know when mum would say to me Jill can you go up to the apples and comb your barnet which was Jill can you go up the apples and pears because apples and pears rhymes with stairs and comb your mm. barnet fair because barnet fair rhymes with hair and that was the life I had growing up so those things which to me it's like well you know we all did that didn't we people find it fascinating it's little snippets of what your life was like growing up and people learn from you as well so 
every single one of us has a story that somebody else is going to say, you know what, I remember that, or wow, I didn't realize that. And everybody, we all do. Yeah, yeah, that, that's so great. And so let's talk a little bit about motivation. I, I like to say that motivation isn't, isn't real and that as you start to make take action toward whatever your goal is, and it's, it can, you, I like to tell people that you find the smallest thing that is impossible to fail that's going to get you a little closer. And that's how you start to, you know, and once you envision what your big goal is, you, you'd have to chunk it down into little goals and then, and then take action along the way. And, and an example I have is that, you know, I had my surgical practice. I couldn't really travel, you know, other than a couple weeks at a time. And I had this desire to drive my car. I have a Tesla Model X, this desire to drive my car across the country to my cousin's house in Laguna Beach. So from New York to Laguna Beach, I planned the trip back in November of 2018. And I was like, nah, I'm never going to be able to do it. And in February of 2022, I did it. I drove my Model X across the USA 3,341 miles. And it was just a matter of allowing the universe to put all the pieces in place. It was something I always wanted to do. I always wanted to do it alone. I didn't want to bring anybody with me and I'm going to drive back alone. So, and I say that because you talk about a map to motivation, you know, how to get started on big life goals, especially in this next phase as we're relaunching. Um, yes. I mean, I, my, my take on it is, um, for example, your example of driving across the US with your Tesla. Uh, for me, that would be like you're looking at the details. So presume you use GPS and you could check on the GPS, see what cities you were going through on route and, and then where, which, work out which cities you needed to stop at. So look at all the detail, at the, you know, where your hotels were going to be, um, uh, what snacks you're going to have on the road, where are you going to eat. So... If you start focusing on all the smaller steps you have to take to, to reach your goal, um, that keeps you motivated because you can. I'm very um, organized, so I, that, that helps me to keep myself going through the whole process. Um, and don't get too worried about the, the goal at the end of it. So as you said, it's, it's overwhelming going from one side of the, the country to another, and a country as big as the US, which is massive. Yeah. So, you know, it's me with the book. I mean, did I sit there and say, oh, I'm Shakespeare, I'm going to be published author? No, no, no. I just focused on the next chapter, the next story. Everything I've done is, 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 has been broken down to very small steps. I can actually remember I was, um, my daughter was in a robotics competition and they, they won second place, a school thing. We ended up wow. going down to Houston, um, the Johnson lab down at Houston. And uh, there was a dinner on the last night to, for all the kids and the, and the parents. And so there were these people who had, had basically been part of the, the moon landing. And she said, don't ever think, she said, that it was easy for her. She said, how did we get from here to the moon? She said, we wrote down the five million steps we needed to take to get us from here. And eventually we did land on the moon. And she said, that's how you should really run your life. Do it one step after the other. And eventually you will get to your goal. And I thought that was brilliant for the children to hear that. And that stayed with me as well. Because I have the sci-fi edge. It's like, oh, I'm here, you know, and all this moon landing stuff. And it was really exciting. Space suits everywhere and Apollo, Apollo craft everywhere. It was really quite, wow. quite interesting. But that's what she said. Break it down to the very, very small steps. 
And if we can go from Earth to the moon, then you can do anything you want to in life. So, and I, I really like that analogy. Yeah, that's that's really great, and I I think that's a good a good uh, time, a good place to end. So, tell us where can we find you? Where can people find you? Um, I have a website which is jmphillipsauthor.com, and on there you will actually see information about my book, but also a lot of family photographs because those are found. I was going to put them in the book, in the end I thought no, I put them on the website. Um, so if you go there and if you want to find my Facebook page, there's actually a button on that website. So that would link directly to my Facebook author page as well. That's and I have great. a few blogs on there as well. If you'd like to oh, know fantastic. more about more background about. Uh, yeah. So I think I think the take home message from this whole conversation, aside from the fact that we both like, like science fiction, <laughs> is that it's never too late. And you can do anything when you put your mind to it and you take action. If you just think about something, it's just, and you don't take any action, all you're doing is a wish. So a goal without any action is just a wish. So put your wishes down on paper and start stepping toward them. Jill, thanks so much for being a part of our podcast today. Yeah, it is exciting. Thanks Thanks so much for being a part of the podcast today. And, um, you know, I hope to have you back. You're writing another book, right? I am indeed, yes, still working on that. It's still in my head, but I'm getting there, yes. (laughs) Thanks so much. 